you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from the ChrisVossShow.com. The Chris Voss Show. Com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you and you and you and that guy over there. Yeah, the one behind you. Did you know he was in the room? Uh, we certainly appreciate you guys tuning in to the Chris Foss Show and being here. We, of course, always have the most brilliant, smartest guests on the show. They actually have to pass an IQ test, and they also have to do that thing where they have to know an elephant and stuff and the 35 questions you hear about. Um, they have to pass all of that before they can get on the show. Naturally, I can't pass any of it, but that's why I'm the host. So anyway, we wonder <laughs> We appreciate you guys being here. If you want to watch the live version of this, go to thecvpn.com or youtube.com for just Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification uh, so you can see all the wonderful interviews we have with some of the most brilliant authors around the world. It's just uh, it's just mind-blowing, the people we have on the show. Um, and be sure to refer the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives, all that good stuff. Today, we have someone coming to us from Oxford, from clean across the pond. Anyway, today, we have a most wonderful guest on the uh, show today. Uh, he is the author of The Technology Trap, Capital, Labor, and Power in the Age of Automation. His name is Carl Benedict Frey, and this guy is quite super brilliant, and he is a director of the future of work at Oxford Martin School. Welcome to the show, Dr. Frey. How are you? Thanks for having me, Chris. Good, 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 and thanks for coming on the show, especially all the way. What time is it over on, on your end of the world right now? It's eight minutes past six. Eight minutes the- past six. And uh, I'm 11 a.m. over here, so awesome sauce. So you've written this uh, interesting piece of work. Uh, give us some plugs on where people can find you on the interwebs and uh, pick up the book. Sure, you can find me at carlbenedictfrey.com, and you can pick up the book at Amazon or Princeton University Press. There you go. So give us some background on you and what uh, made you interested in writing this book. Sure. So back in 2013, Michael Osborne and I, Mike is an associate professor of machine learning here at Oxford University, we published a paper trying to assess how many jobs that can be potentially automated given recent advances in artificial intelligence and and mobile robotics. And at the time, we estimated that roughly 47% of American jobs are exposed to automation technologies as a result of these advances. And, and I think in doing so, we contributed somewhat to this dichotomy where people think that either this time is completely different, technology is going to take all the jobs, and history has nothing to teach us about what is uh, going to happen. And, and on the other hand, we kept saying that, well, you look at the past 200 years, we had had steady mechanization, it has, if anything, created more jobs during this period of time. So what should we really worry about? And, and the book that you mentioned, The Technology Trap, that came out last year, 
uh, takes issue with both of these views and in that it's essentially asked the question, should we feel reassured if the future of automation mirrors the past? And it comes to the conclusion that we should not. Yes, over the long run, technological change has been enormously beneficial to us all, especially on people and uh, our lower incomes. But in the short run, it's created enormous disruption in labor markets and, and the short run can be a lifetime for some. Yeah. So it's going to make a huge difference with robotics and, and uh, AI um, and stuff. I, I almost wonder sometimes if, is it, if it just makes more of a – like one of the things we have here in America is like we've gone from these industrial – high-paying union jobs like you had in Detroit, you know, building automobiles, et cetera, et cetera, in the 80s uh, and prior uh, to now where everyone just kind of works at Subway, you know, uh, these low these low quality, I, you know, I don't mean to be mean to people at Subway, but, you know, they're, they're low, they're low uh, technical jobs that are low pay, um, you know, in, in a strip mall, which you can find on every corner in America, Um and and it seems like it just it's just there's this pressure that just keeps pushing down people into lower paying jobs, lower quality jobs. I mean, there's there's definitely higher quality jobs. So is that kind of the the thrust of the book? Yeah. So what we've seen over the past three decades or so is this polarization of the labor market, as men, that many have been uh, writing about. David Daughter at MIT and co-authors have written several papers showing that middle-income jobs, in particular, have contracted across advanced economies, and um, in large part due to automation technology taking a lot of jobs in manufacturing. And in particular, and what we've seen is that two types of new jobs have been created. So on the one hand, we see that relatively low-skilled jobs have been created, as you mentioned, in the sort of service sectors. We see more uh, new types of jobs for fitness instructors and in restaurants and so on. And, And we also see an expansion of employment in technology industries and in professional services. And so we're seeing this polarization of the labor market. And as a general sort of rule of thumb, we see that people with college degrees have done relatively well. They tend to be in sort of the, these relatively skilled, well-paying jobs. People without college degrees have done less well. They've often dropped out of these manufa- sort of middle-income manuf- manufacturing jobs and are now competing for uh, low-income jobs in the service sector. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge too. It's become it's become a real issue. And even people that get their college degrees, even if they get really good degrees here in America, because of the way we're structured uh, in the crazy way we do things, um, th- those people are still almost at an indentured servitude level of income because even though they get a better job and they get paid well, they're, they're still servicing these crazy college uh, loans that we have over here that you, you can't even get away from. It's, 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 it's basically indentured servitude. I mean, you can't file bankruptcy. You can't. I think they still charge you after you die. <laughs> that is true, particularly in the United States, that the cost of higher education has been through the roof and people have been accumulating uh, a lot of debt. I think it's important to keep in mind, as you mentioned here, right, the cost of higher education has followed different trajectories in different countries, or at least the way it's been financed have followed very different trajectories in different countries. So um, in um, Sweden, where I'm from, for example, higher education is primarily financed through, uh, you know, 
um, tax, the taxpayer. Um, and um, if we look at um, Sweden, for example, you see that unionization rates are still enormously high, right? So in the United States, as you mentioned, a lot of these unionized jobs have been automated away. And you can argue that that is because compet of competitive pressures due to globalization as well. And you have these right-to-work um, states in the U.S., which have attracted a lot of manufacturing companies, and you have had this race to the bottom. Um, but you can't say that that is the reason why Walmart workers aren't unionized, right? So they are in the non-credit sector of the economy. In Sweden, for example, a lot of people, uh, or most people in the non-credit sectors of the economy, and are uh, at least under collective bargaining coverage and um, as well. So it depends a lot on institutions too. And and policy of government? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So no question about that. Been, it's been a hodgepodge mix. We used to be a highly unionized uh, society. Um, and of course we went through, I think the early 1900s where there wasn't unions and, uh, you know, that workers, if they tried to protest unsafe conditions, you know, just horrible working conditions, they were beaten and abused. Um, and so then we went through this phase of, of unions and then somewhere in the eighties, they started getting disassembled. Uh, like you say, we started seeing more right to work States. Um, and a lot of it was from a Republican perspective of, of, of anti labor and stuff like that. Pro business, pro business owners, really, when it comes down to it, they, they claim to be pro business, but they're pro business owners, not, not labor. Um, and so you talk about in your book that basically from the industrial revolution all the way to the age of artificial intelligence, um, the different technological processes and how they've radically, radically shifted the distribution of economic and political power among society's mentors. Um, I noticed in a video that I watched of yours, you, you were talking about what's gone on recently with some of the politics of America, why some of the different people have been elected under the perception of, of that they would bring jobs back, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so I mean, first of all, I think you um, are absolutely right about what you mentioned about unions. I would add to that, though, that there is a global tendency of these middle-income jobs being hollowed out. So it's not just a, a story of de-unionization, it is also a story of globalization and automation. And we should also keep in mind that wages began to rise in the 19th century and working conditions began to improve already in the 19th century, even before uh, there was any widespread a union movement. Mm. So I think it is important to remember that worker conditions, uh, working conditions also in very large part depends on the sort of alternative job options uh, people have, right? Now, so, during that period, do we have a lot of globalization? What period was that? So in the late 19th century, we do have uh, the first wave um, of globalization. And okay. um, what we also have is some changes in uh, factory automation. So first of all, we're moving away increasingly from shared labor because uh, steam-powered machinery um, can only be run by uh, adult, uh, adult labor. Uh, it's quite physically demanding uh, to do so. And we also see machinery becoming increasingly standardized across factories. And what that means is that workers all of a sudden, they don't just have their human capital tied up in one firm. Uh, that can't just run one type of machine or one company, they can run the same machine at all sorts of businesses. And that means that for the first time, they can actually credibly threaten to leave the company, which gives them a boost um, in terms of bargaining power um, as well. So we do see 
that technological change are improving uh, people's wages and working conditions already before the union movement, and the switch to electricity as well played a huge role, right? So it uh, made factories less polluted, it increased brightness, um, factory um, owners could get rid of all this jungles of, uh, jungle of shafts and counter shafts that threatened workers' fingers, arms, and lives. So we see that technology has been a key driver of these improvements too. And during period of times when it sort of created um, new vast industrial undertakings and sort of electrical machinery, automobiles, and so on, uh, where we saw rising wages, workers were gradually able to organize and take advantage of um, their uh, uh, growth in political clout to unionize and add to that. So we see technologies that create new jobs, increase the bargaining power of labor, but they can then use that bargaining power to unionize and that sort of creates a, a virtuous cycle. Um, and conversely, you can have replacing technologies that reduces the demand for labor and also uh, uh, reduces the bargaining power of the union. And uh, so, for example, in 1964, when switchboard operators go and strike in the United States, and the New York Times writes that the strike virtually went unnoticed because uh, the companies could just switch over some of the supervisors to run the already almost completely automated systems, right? So these automation technologies um, also reduce the bargaining power um, uh, of labor and as it puts pressure on people's wages. It's interesting to me, too, what's going to happen in the future. Um, COVID-19 has really thrown America a curveball, and it doesn't help that we have, you know, really poor leadership over here, if you haven't seen it in the papers. <laughs> um, and it looks like it's just going to make our economic downturn uh, just, I, I can't even imagine how bad it's going to be. I was just reading that even the UK's. <clears throat> It really started going through a bad recession, but I think you guys are starting to rebound maybe a little bit faster than us, or you're not at least going through the trough. We're just going full America number one with it, where we're just like, yeah, baby, most deaths. <laughs> um, but I recently saw that Uber and the other ride-sharing factors in here that a lot of people went and got jobs with, um, they uh, recently lost their California lawsuit uh, and, and that's saying that they now have to, you know, pay the extra taxes and the health care and extra things, which I think is going to drive these, you know, these car companies and more people in the gig economy, we call it over here, into automation. And uh, um, so it's going to be interesting to see how this whole menagerie of craziness, recession, um, businesses going out of business, a lot of jobs drying up are really going to affect us here going into the future. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I actually don't discuss that much in the book is this changing nature of work and the rise of the gig economy, as you mentioned. And I th do think that it's still important. I mean, gig work, it must be said, is still a tiny fraction of the overall economy, but mm -hmm. it's growing and it's going to become more important. And it's going also to be a force that sort of... Uh, it will force us to think through uh, labor laws and labor institutions uh, the way that unions changed in the 20th century, right? So mm -hmm. from the 19th century, you have these cross-based institutions uh, that are structured around how what production looked like in more or less a pre-industrial economy. As uh, the second industrial revolution really takes off, right? You have these mass production industries and workers begin to organize uh, more on the industry level, uh, which makes more sense 
um, uh, given the rise of these mass production industries. And, and we now see in those jobs increasingly uh, on the production lines being automated away. And we're seeing to some extent this rise of these gig works, um, uh, these gig jobs. And, and the question is, how do we shape our institutions to accommodate on the one hand the flexibility and that those um, arrangements bring, but at the same time, you know, uh, providing safeguards that don't lead to this race to the bottom uh, that we all want uh, to avoid. And I think that is uh, one of the key challenges uh, facing policymakers um, uh, in uh, this field uh, sphere today. And and it's pretty interesting right now. I mean, what we're going through and what you talk about in your book, um, you know, we we – in our gig economy, there's a lot of the people that are on the gig economy that don't, we don't show up on unemployment things. You know, I'm, I've been self-employed all my life. I don't show up on unemployment roles because I, I can't really file for unemployment the way I'm based. Um, <clears throat> so when I take a loss of a lot of money, which I did this year, you know, with all the you know, speaking engagements are gone, events are gone, you know, everything that I would normally be doing that's technically guaranteed income for me year after year. Uh, you know, that's just, that's just out the window. There's nothing I can do about it. The money's gone. Um, I'm, you know, I still make money from a lot of different things that I do. Thank God I, you know, have multiple streams of income, but, um, but you know, it has an effect on me. It has affected the economy. I know some people, I know some of my friends that are just wiped out. They're just, they, they had one, they had one revenue source and they're part of that gig economy In, in your book. When you talk about, um, all of this, all of this stuff, and how it affects the cause and effect of it all. What's what's the conclusion um, of what's happening, or what's going to happen at the end, or what's what's your summation or theory? Well, so the basic idea of the book is that the long run depends on positive attitudes towards technological change, and those positive attitudes can't be taken for granted. So it's really first in the 20th century that average people really begin to see the benefits of technological change in their pockets and on mass scale. They gradually begin to see it in Britain already in the 19th uh, century. Um, but for the most of history, right, people resisted the introduction of new technologies. You had very powerful craft skills that would not have nothing that threatened their skills and incomes. And fearing social unrest, monarchs and political elites um, mostly actually sided with um, those who resisted technological change. Mm. Everybody who had a you know, stake in the status quo, and, and the same is true today, um, have very little interest in change and uh, political instability. And of course, innovation and technological change and has always been a force uh, of instability, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, in order to ensure that people um, are still um, buying into that system of dynamism and creative destruction, uh, we developed the welfare state. We developed uh, public education to help people um, adjust. We provided these cushions for people that fell through the cracks. Um, and um, the key theme of the book is that we can't take, uh, you know, these positive attitudes uh, um, for technological change for granted looking forward, especially in the light of what has happened over the past three decades and what happened during the first industrial revolution. And these have been very similar episodes uh, from an economic point of view. Obviously, the political economy 
and it's very different. The Luddites that rioted against the mechanized factory in Britain uh, in the early 19th century did not have much political voice. Property ownership was a requirement for voting, and the Luddites uh, were essentially politically disenfranchised. But they petitioned to Parliament to block the introduction and of new technologies. They rioted against the mechanized factory on several occasions. And, and they were essentially right in doing so because wages were stagnant or even falling for a large share of the population during this period of time. And they had no way of knowing that the Industrial Revolution would eventually bring huge benefits to their children uh, and grandchildren. In similar fashion, if we look at the wages of uh, blue collar workers uh, with no more than a high school degree uh, who would have flocked into the factories before um, um, the rise of the robots. Um, their wages have been falling in the United States for four consecutive decades now. They are 30% roughly lower today than they were in uh, 1979 at uh, manufacturing employment. Um, the, the manufacturing employment peak in absolute numbers. So. Um, they do potentially have an incentive to uh, riot against the mechaniz uh, mechanization the way the Luddites did. And there's already been this backlash against globalization. The key point I make in the book is that globalization and automation have had very similar effects um, on the labor market. Um, and if you look at, if you want to understand, for example, why three key uh, swing states of so Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania that have been opted for the Democratic candidate in every election by President uh, Trump. Automation is one of the key reasons. So there are more robots in Michigan alone than the entire American industrial West, where we see robots being adopted more extensively. We see pressure on employment and wages. And, and these um, voters opted for President Trump. And many of them probably bought into the rhetoric about you know, being tough on China and making better trade deals, protectionism and so on. But these jobs are not going to come back. Uh, and these measures are anything going to make things worse. And if you want to sort of understand what's happened to jobs in steel uh, production, then you have to uh, visit the steel mine. Uh, you won't find very many workers there because they are heavily automated. And, and people will realize this eventually. They will see that globalization has not been the main uh, driver uh, of their um, economic uh, misfortunes. Um, and they will also, um, I suspect, um, realize that the rise of China can only happen once, right? It's already mm -hmm. happened. Yeah. Most people today also already work in non-traded sectors of the economy. They are relatively shielded from future globalization, but they are not very shielded from automation. And so the job of a truck driver, for example, can be automated, but yeah. it can't be sent off to China. And the same is true for the job of a cashier. Yeah. And, and there are roughly uh, 3.5 million cashiers still in the United States today. So these changes um, are coming. They're going to continue to put pressure and I suspect on the wages of uh, low-skilled workers. We are now in the midst of a pandemic-induced uh, recession, which means that people's job options are a lot worse if they lose their jobs uh, due to technological change or um, any other source of dislocation for that matter. And, and, and there's no 
it is not a coincidence that most episodes of automation excited have actually been during recessions, right? Uh, the Luddite riots happened during the Continental Blockade, the Napoleonic Wars, which caused disruption to British trade. There was tremendous uh, anxiety over automation during the Great Depression. Um, again, during three post-Korean War recessions, again in the aftermath of the Great Recession, I suspect this time it's not going to be any different in that regard. Wow! So we have some unrest to look forward to, and and um, and uh, some ugliness, and more automation. Because I mean, I'm, I imagine companies will just be looking to, you know, since they they can't afford as much, they'll be looking more to automation investment. Well, one of the points I try to make in the book is that, yes, these forces by themselves can be very uh, destabilizing. Um, They are, again, they are the drivers of prosperity over the long run, but they can be very destabilizing in the short run. And people's response to them are in large part going to also depend on the type of policies that are uh, implemented uh, to, you know, help smoothen the transition um, and, you know, help protect jobs. So um, I think in the end of the day, you know, predictions about how all of this will pay, play out um, are predictions about what is likely to happen in politics. And since we struggle to predict the outcome of the next general election, even the same day, uh, I'm not going to sit here and make political predictions. But I think uh, you know, all of this is going to play out in the sphere of political economy rather than the sphere of technology itself. So, um, you know, you bring up a good point, and and one of the one of the most uh, I don't know if this is in the book, but one of the most uh, ironic stories of the Trump era was the carrier story. If you're familiar with it, the carrier uh, factory, and the the president went in, and this was before he'd officially become president. I think he'd been elected, and he was in that 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 segue that we have between uh when you're officially elected but uh carrier was going to lay off uh, a lot of people like it was uh, i think it was 150 years like a lot of people and uh he jumped in and started yelling at them and blah 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 and they went oh okay well well you know they were going to ship a bunch of jobs to mexico and they're like oh yeah okay whatever uh we we've decided that you know since he's given us hell we're not going to do that and he triumphed it as you know like i'm fighting for the worker and stuff and what Carrier did is they used the they used a bunch of money and they just automated that facility. So they end up laying off the workers, and in fact, they ended up still moving jobs to Mexico, just not as many. Uh, it was an interesting story. The ironicness of of a politician claiming they're going to save jobs, we're going to keep those jobs from moving, and they just brought in automation to eat the jobs. It is indeed, and had it happened a bit earlier, I would have put it in the book as well. So it's <laughs> pretty crazy. I was like, "Oh my!" I was like, "Oh my god!" And then, and then just later, they just moved all the jobs, and they just didn't even care. And since it wasn't being politically watched or cared about at that moment, um, no one did it. So, what do what do people have to do? Is there some, is there a mandate in the book of that gives advice to people on how they can do for themselves, or is it is it an open ended book where uh, this is the history of what people keep doing and how they should approach it. Um, do governments need to work at re-educating or re-engineering, um, re-skilling, re-educating and skilling um, uh, workers to adapt to the automation, and et cetera, et cetera? 
So it doesn't provide much personal advice. And the reason for that is I think that t- tends not to be the speciality of academics in general. Mm. Uh, we are almost unable, unable to help ourselves. So uh, how could we potentially help others? Uh, but um, uh, it does provide some suggestions for uh, policy uh, mm. changes. Um, and I think one of the key points I try to make that um, often you will hear that we have this a big challenge with automation and it requires one really big solution and that needs to be universal basic income. Uh, But I think that has become uh, more of a distraction than something um, that is helpful. Um, And uh, what I propose in the book is a range of policy proposals that individually uh, may sound uh, minor, but I think that can collectively uh, make a big difference. And uh, I think there are several things that can be done to help workers um, adjust. So on the one hand, you know, we see this imbalance where new jobs are, um, are being created and old jobs are disappearing. So we see that in old manufacturing towns in particular, there's a lot of job loss in manufacturing industry, but not only that, right? Every manufacturing job also supported jobs in the local service economy, uh, people spend the money there. So we also see the local service um, economy taking a hit as these jobs disappearing. Conversely, we see this sort of um, high-tech um, industries in biotech, uh, software engineering, non-technology, and so on. And these industries tend to be highly clustered. And these are also very high-paying jobs. And, and as a consequence, uh, when people go out and spend most money where they live, that means that a lot of these low-skilled service jobs are also being created in cities where these industries cluster. So there's enormous relocation um, of economic activity taking place. And at the same time, we see less geographic uh, mobility. So a lot of people are no longer actually moving to where the jobs are being created. And that suggests to me that there are significant hurdles to actually moving where the jobs are. And one is the cost of housing, right? So. Mm-hmm where a lot of people um, uh, on higher incomes live, where a lot of wealth is, housing tends to be um, also uh, quite expensive and also quite constrained. So you have a lot of zoning restrictions in those particular places intended to keep people out. Um, And we need to deal with that to build more where new jobs um, are actually emerging. Um, But we also need to realize that Everybody is not going to want to move, and we need to make it easier for people to commute to places uh, where new jobs are emerging from where they already are. So one uh, example that is close to my own heart, because it's where I grew up in Sweden, and I grew up in a small university town called Lund. Just south of that is an industrial city, or what used to be an industrial city called Malmö. Malmö had a long um, profited enormously from its shipyard, which closed down in the 1990s. And, and the um, city did very poorly uh, for a long time after that. And the revival essentially came with the bridge to Copenhagen, which meant that people in Malmö could stay put in Malmö, where housing was cheap, commute into Copenhagen, where there was a greater abundance of well-paying jobs, more opportunities. Most people will still spend their income where they lived in Malmö, which gave a boost to the local service economy there, and which created a virtuous cycle, and it's become one of the most dynamic labor markets in Europe. So I think by connecting, expanding, and declining places through smart infrastructure investment, uh, a lot can actually be achieved. 
And in addition to that, I do think we need to do something um, uh, about uh, falling incomes at the lower end of the income distribution. So I'm all in favor of tax credits um, on the lower end of the income distribution. The trouble with UBI, um, in my view, is that uh, the U, right? So UBI without the U uh, would not be so bad, and you would then end up with something like a negative income tax, right? So people, you know, um, it will be a floor below uh, which people's incomes cannot fall, and then, you know, you can uh, work more and top up that income. So that would be a bad idea. But if you make it universal, you're essentially redistributing income from the lower end of the income distribution to the middle and the top, right? Because existing welfare transfers target people in the lower end. So if you make it universal, you're actually going to worsen inequality. And for mm-hmm. that reason, I don't think that um, that is um, a great um, solution. Um, and finally, I think we need to do something about the subsidy of automation technology in particular. So what we've been seeing now for some time is corporate tax rates being slashed, taxes on labors being flat or even rising. And that, what that does is essentially incentivize businesses to invest in automation technology rather than capital uh, saving and technologies, right? So it's essentially directing uh, technological change or incentivizing businesses more to invest in technologies that replaces labor rather than technologies that save capital. So I think we need to um, close uh, that tax gap. And finally, what is true of every industry is that it has this sort of cycle, right, where it grows rapidly for a period of time and at some point it saturates and stagnates. And at that point, you know, um, the business is going to continue to be profitable through efficiency gains, gains, through automation, through offshoring, and saving labor costs and so on. At that point, you know, that industry will release labor. What you need then is new industries emerging and expanding and new businesses coming in. And something that you see in the United States is that new business formation has been uh, on the decline for 30 years as well. And at the same time as productivity has been uh, in decline. Um, and so we need to create more new businesses that can actually absorb the labor that is being shredded in all those industries. Um, and I think there is growing evidence that, you know, many of these firms, um, and I'm not just talking about the tech companies, um, have market power and they spend a lot of their profits on actually maintaining their competitive position through lobbying, right? And something that we do know is that companies with more political connections tend to be less innovative and they tend to try to block entry of new companies. So we really need to do something about money and politics. And because it's not just a question of declining labor unions, right? Bargaining power is relative, right? You can be still have, you know, unions, but if you see a rise in spending on lobbying while, you know, the uh, power of unions is flat, it still means declining, potentially declining bargaining power. What you have in the U.S. is both the unions being in decline and uh, tremendous um, expansion of spending on corporate lobbying in particular. And I think um, that is a huge problem, not just for the labor market, but the overall dynamism of the American economy. You know, you bring up some really good points. Uh, let me get to, uh, let me start kind of at where you started. Um, you know, one of the one of the issues with the Trump thing that you mentioned, like with Michigan, Pennsylvania, and what they call the flyover states, is many of these states, you know, used to be thriving 
metropolises. They had they had jobs, union jobs, um, and then they vamoosed. You know, manufacturing either went someplace else or it disappeared in the country, um, and it created these places where these people are in little go little literal ghost towns that just haven't given up yet, but they literally are. And, um, you know, not a lot of, I, I suppose on some, on some level are, you know, you can say, well, policy people, you know, they've, they've looked to a president or somebody to create jobs for them. And for some reason, Americans, there's some Americans that are stupid enough to believe that a politician gives them a job. Um, but, but so we have these people that live in these dead zones and then we have all this unused land. Like if you like you mentioned earlier, if you go to California, the cost of it's expensive. But if you go just up from California between Nevada and California, there is all this desert that could easily be developed with cheap housing and everything else. And we could just move those people. Or, you know, I've often wondered through all my technological friends and the discussion we had about jobs. Is there a way to get jobs there? But it sounds like a lot of what you're talking about is is a multifaceted, very complex, and a lot of it seems to have a lot to do with policy of what governments need to be looking at and jobs and whether or not they whether or not they're more concerned about the people lobbying them and filling their coffers for uh, their office and running for office, or whether or not they really care about the workers in really su- supporting the jobs with maybe wage. Um, wage guarantees or, you know, wage things. Like we've had this whole argument here in, in, in uh, America about like, Oh God, if we go to 15 bucks an hour for minimum wage people, they're all going to, you know, all the business will go out of business. Turns out, you know, it goes around, comes around with the money, just like you talked about with uh, sustaining people on the low end of the field. So um, I don't know. It's, it's really interesting, but I, I like what you're saying because you're saying it's, it's a very complex thing from a lot of different facets because politicians will run around and play the shell game and they'll be like, oh, it's all about unions. Oh, it's all about, you know, this over here. And, oh, it's all about taxes. And really, it's, it's about a lot of different things that combine and, and mesh into each other. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, everybody has their preferred solutions. I have some preferred solutions as well, but I think what is needed is a package of a lot of things coming together because there are a lot of things that have been going wrong in the economy uh, lately that can't just be derived to one factor. Yes, automation, globalization has been driving inequality, but it's not the only sources uh, of dislocation. Um, And it's not the only sources um, of rising um, inequality. Um, And as we see when we look at different countries, all of these forces uh, interact with institutions, interact with policy decisions, um, and I think that's important to keep in mind. Yeah, definitely interesting. What about, uh, you know, one of the problems we've had here in America is the tax rate has fallen for the top 1% from like 90% down to where they actually pay less in taxes than the average American does. And it used to be that they they held a higher burden to a contribution to our society, even our corporations, you know, getting away with murder. You've probably seen where, you know, companies like Apple and other places are using Ireland uh, post office boxes as a, as a way to park profits to avoid paying taxes. It's like insane. I mean, more and more what we've seen in America is the burden of maintaining this economy or at least the debt of this economy, or I wouldn't say economy, but, but the, the federal funding of the federal government, um, has fallen more and more to the average American and just eating them alive in taxes. Well, billionaires just keep getting more money and, and more rich. In fact, they just got richer over this last, uh, 
recessionary period we've had of doing the quarantine. Everybody's, you know, taking a bath and they're just, they're still just getting richer. Yeah, I have to say though, I think there's been an overwhelming focus on wealth taxes and on billionaires, but I actually do think these lobbying groups are more important. So if you look mm-hmm. at campaign contributions, yes, there has been an upsurge in you know campaign contributions by the top one percent, but it's nothing if you look compared to uh, lobbying groups. So I think we need to. Th- look more actually to the institutions that are really driving this, that are really stifling competition mm-hmm. and bending the rules in ways that means that they can make profits through rents rather than innovating and creating uh, new products. And I think that is, to me, the key issue. And, I mean, there's clearly, you know, uh, there's a lot of room for improvements with the tax code's concerned. Uh, yeah. But when it comes to uh, you know, innovation and the labor market, um, I actually do think that the shift um, in political power that has happened between you know, the decline of labor unions and the rise of corporate lobbying um, is more important than you know, uh, the pol- political influence uh, of, let's say, Bill Gates. You know, on balance, I would say he's been a positive contribution uh, to America. <laughs> Maybe he should pay some more taxes. But I don't think that was uh, the main. Uh, you know, you know, I think you're right. We we had Citizens United get tossed out by the Supreme Court, and since then we have gotten into so much trouble as a country with dark money. I mean, we've got Russia money coming in here, like you guys do. That's 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 funneling around, buying out our politicians. Um, and you're right. There's the, between the PACs and, and the dark money and the different ways they have lining politicians' pockets. Uh, one of the things that we've had that's been a, a huge boon in, in this country in different states has been the legalization of marijuana. And uh, a lot of places have been against legalization of, of, of marijuana, uh, largely the prison unions, uh, the police forces, you know, they – you know, that's where they make all their bread and butter. That's where they keep people, you know, they, they arrest them, throw them in jail for marijuana, and then they keep them in prison for the next 30 years for, you know, four grams of marijuana. Um, and then you have the pharmaceuticals that are trying to protect their, um, you know, they, they want people to buy their product instead of marijuana, which is, you know, interesting here in Las Vegas when um, uh, marijuana became legal recreationally, uh, I started I started taking it. Um, and I literally went for like six months without taking uh, acetaminophen, you know, Tylenol. And I, I was like, and I was using it for pain from my old age and my broken down body. Um, and I literally went, oh, wow, I get why far, big pharma doesn't want me, you know, marijuana legalized because I, for much cheaper, I can, I can actually, you know, deal, deal with my pain. I, I have people that, that OCD, um, people that have, uh, you know, got, uh, uh, war, war scars, et cetera, et cetera. But we've seen uh, a huge amount of taxes come from it. So there's been a huge income that's come from that to cities and states, uh, that has been unprecedented. So that's helped lift schools and funding and stuff. And then, like you say, innovation technologies. Uh, we have a we have a podcast called Pop Biz Podcast where we just talk about the investment part and the business part of, of marijuana. And there's all sorts of service industries that come into it. There's clean rooms. There's like you go to the conventions and there's like a million different accessory services to the manufacturing of marijuana, the packaging it, the shipping and stuff. And 
and like you say, right now, big pharma and unions and, and other people are, are trying to keep that from spreading through the U.S., but it's a new technology. It's fresh. It's new, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, may have the chance to save us from whatever. Who knows the way we're, we operate here in America? We're crazy. Um, you guys have seen that movie. Um, but, uh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, uh, it's something that needs to be. So basically we just need to elect better leaders that, that, I don't know, think from a more complex standard and, and maybe hopefully could save us. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it's uh, one uh, desirable way uh, of going, Mm -hmm. uh, but um, obviously we need to think through and come up with new good proposals as well that we can mm. push to leaders and you know, new ideas that uh, are uh, electable. And I think mm. um, something that um, you know, a lot of mainstream um, politics has struggled with, uh, with the rise of populism is you know, finding um, those uh, new ideas. And you know, I'm an academic. We don't tend to be visionaries uh, here's your history and here's what you keep repeating Uh, i'm an economist (laughs) i do believe in the division of labor and there are people that are better placed in coming up with some of those ideas than i am but but what you outline in your book is pretty much we keep repeating a lot of the same things through history and going through these technological ups and downs correct yeah, and I think that was one of the striking things when researching the book, that we've actually had this sort of same conversation over and over again for the past 200 years or so. And these things, as you say, uh, often come in cycles. And many of the ideas that I thought were you know, fairly uh, innovative in the debate these days, I found being proposed in the 1960s and the 1930s, wow. and some of them going back to the 1930s. So, it's uh, like yes, I always say, the one thing... I think we have a new idea. It's often for the our ignorance of history. So that's why it's important to read your book, is so that people can figure out these cycles and how everything's going on. The one thing I always say, the one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history. <laughs> and there lies the, uh, the cyclical nature of the dichotomy or the irony of it. Um, so, uh, very interesting, uh, a lot of different stuff you go through the book, um, showing how this works. Uh, you know, this has always been something that has fascinated me because I watched the, I've watched over the years, the, the, uh, dissolving of the middle class, the dissolving of unions. You know, I grew up, I grew up in an age where, uh, you went to work for one company for all your life. They gave you a ring at the end you know, or a watch, a gold watch, you're going to go watch saying, Hey, thanks for working here. And, and you're retired. And it was like off in the sunset. Um, and now it's just, it's, it just becomes more, uh, disposable in our workforce. Um, you know, now one of the big things that are, that's huge here in, in America is contract labor where they just don't even bother hiring you. They just go, we're going to test drive you for a while. We're just going to do contract labor. And that's just made workers even more disposable. Yeah, no, that has been a trend for some time. And obviously that being exacerbated by the gig platforms that we uh, talked about earlier. Now I'm, I'm in favor of flexibility, but I'm not in favor of a race to the bottom. And as we discussed earlier, there needs to be uh, some rebalancing there to um, ensure that, uh, you know, uh, there is still um, some source of uh, job security uh, for people that uh, uh, fall through the cracks. 
When CEOs or huge business leaders that run large industries read your book, what, what's a good take that they should come from it? Well, I think, first of all, um, for CEOs, I think it's hopefully uh, enlightening to see that, uh, you know, businesses um, have been facing the same challenges uh, for the past 200 years. So they can actually, you know, uh, learn something um, from um, that history. But I think the book as such is not primarily targeting corporate managers. So one thing that you clearly see in the book is that when it comes to a lot of the social challenges we face, um, they need to be solved um, on the political uh, level. So, for example, if you go back to the 1920s, you had a lot of these welfare capitalist schemes being developed where, you know, the business provided social security, pension schemes, all sorts of benefits. And then the Depression hits, and guess what? These are the first things that are being cut uh, during the Depression. Uh, and you need more continuity than that, right? Mm-hmm. We had the Business Roundtable last year. We're now in the midst of the pandemic. We will see you know, how firms uh, keep to their you know, social pledges through this time. But the lesson of history is that during economic downturns, you tend to see businesses cutting costs, and uh, they have to cut costs uh, yeah. often. Um, in order to survive. So, you know, um, providing these safety nets is something that um, we need governments for. um, And uh, that's why we need a strong state. Yeah. It's interesting to when I look at what the United States is going to have to do to bail out of this. I mean, we're already deeply in debt. We already had the Trump administration early on uh, spend a trillion dollars of of giveaway to rich people in, in, uh, in tax breaks and tax incentives. Um, and then now we're now we've spent I think we've spent another trillion on that last bailout, and we're going to have to do another trillion of bailout, and uh, or, or more. It, it could be three to four trillion, if not, to hold up the economy. And right now we're at this thing. If you've been watching us, where we recently expired the uh, support that we were giving people that were unemployed, we recently expired the evictions, and. I've been looking at it from an economic standpoint because I know what goes around comes around, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And, and, and you know, everybody's kind of sharing the pain in something like this, I suppose, in some way. But you, you, we almost need to be spending money to ensure that the, the very bottom part of our society, the people that are the most going to be the most hurt by this, are going to be the most people that if we have to give a livable wage to of some type or minimum wage, um, we need to do that because if, if we, I, I don't know if you've seen like in state in, in states like California and San Francisco, we have, we have this growing people of people that are living out of their vans and their campers. And, you know, there's even, there's even people at Berkeley in that are professors that are living out of their cars in San Francisco. They're professors. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and so what I'm wondering is if we have all these evictions and all this stuff going on, we're just not going to have a whole mess of people living on the campers and that hurts the economy. Cause like what you talked about earlier, what they spend in the local economy, what they buy. And, you know, it, it just becomes this, like you say, race to the bottom drain where we, you know, things just keep getting worse because nothing's, no money's coming into the economy and everyone's sitting on their, on their cash or something, or if they have any. 
Yeah, so I'll try to again with that bit of a more positive spin since we're coming to <laughs> the end of the interview. It is that one of the lessons from the Great Depression, though, is that what it did is that it helped foster you know, some sort of cross-class loyalty, loyalty, if you like. And because what it did, it showed people that misfortune can happen to almost anybody. Um, and that is what we're seeing with this pandemic as well. Yes, low-income workers are much more exposed than people that are able to work from home, uh, for example. You know, the uh, crisis clearly showing and pointing uh, very clearly to many um, uh, of the inequalities in our societies. But um, it does also um, affect almost anybody in one uh, way or another. And, And I do think that as... but certainly hope that when we come out of this, and it will have fostered some of those bonds that the Great Depression uh, did foster, and and that you know Britain and the US and, and other countries in Europe uh, come out more united um, as a consequence. Hopefully so. It's going to be really interesting for us in November as to who wins that election, and it's going to affect everybody, including you know countries like Europe. Um, and I think you're. I, I think you're right. It's. I, I guess we have to go through the bloodletting to to get to the other side. Uh, I know that the the recession that we had in 2008 uh, created a huge different technological economy. The iPhone. What came out of it? Consulting, Twitter, social media networks, Facebook. You know, this whole sort of different economy. Uh, it made it easier. It democratized so many different things that were kind of exclusive to to. Uh, T, uh, I don't know what you call them, tier industries, but, you know, suddenly people broadcast. I mean, I have a podcast now because of what came out of the 2008 thing. But before, you know, I, pro- I well, probably still these days, they wouldn't let me on radio. But <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if there's going, and you probably wrote about this in your book. This is one of the cycles uh, that we're going to hopefully come out the side with something better. But um, to me is a, I don't know. I'm a weird sort of person. I, you know, I looked at like I, when I looked at like the, the communist wall fell and everyone was so joyous and like, Hey, happy days. I was like, how many people had to die for that thing? How many people had to suffer for 60, 70, 80 years under the, under the dress of that dying in the horror. Um, it, it's interesting. The, the amount of casualties of, of human toll and suffering that have to go into these things. But I suppose that is, part of the gig i don't know <laughs> there you go well carl it's been wonderful to have you on give us some plugs uh so everyone can check the book out online and, and find out more about you the book is called the technology trap capital labor and power in the age of automation you can find it on amazon you can find it uh, at waterstones i'm not sure what are the big book uh, sellers in the u.s uh Apart from Amazon, you can find it on most uh, of of uh, these booksellers' pages, and I would suspect. Um, and uh, you can find more about it on my homepage, carlbenedictfrey.com. There you go. The technology trap: capital, labor, and power 
in the age of automation. Thanks for being on the show, uh, Dr. Frey. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, be sure to check out his book and order it up online. Uh, you can take and uh, see the video version of this at youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification. And also refer your friends, neighbors, relatives to thecvpn.com or chrisvosspodcastnetwork.com where you can subscribe to all nine podcasts that we have on the Chris Voss Show Network. Thanks for tuning in to my audience, and we'll see you next time.